Amen. We do have an outline here. It's basically showing how we have divided, and others do the same thing, of Revelation into seven cycles with an introduction and a conclusion. And uh, we've been in the book now for about a year and two months. Of course, there's been a lot of stops and starts along the way. But um, I was just going over Revelation 18 and going to finish Revelation 18 tonight. And then I realized that, um, you know, it's kind of easy to get lost in the weeds along the way and forget the path that took us here. So I want to recap where we've been, remind us of the structure, help us put it all together. We are coming up upon the end of the book, uh, the final battle, and uh, then to the most controversial of all chapters, Revelation chapter 20, especially the first part of it, very controversial. We'll spend time on that, uh, looking at the various views and and uh, letting you make the choice of what you believe is the correct one. And uh, then the destruction of God's enemies, the great judgment of the last day, and the eternal bliss of the saints. And uh, we'll find that chapters 18 through 20 are not chronological either in the way that they're outlined. And I think it's really important to note that there is a, a key phrase in the book. Depends what kind of translation you have But the key phrase is, after these things. That makes our Western minds go, ah, here we go. Here's the next thing that happens. And that's not what it means. When it says, uh, after these things, it means the next vision I saw, basically. That's what it amounts to. And that's important to realize. Because otherwise, you go, what in the world is that all about? That doesn't make any sense, you know. And so, when we see after these things or after that, and then realize that is not telling us chronolog- chronology. It's telling us this is what I saw next after the vision previous. Because it's a book of visions. That's what we're dealing with. And um, there are certain seven sections in the book, uh, as I said. But they all have kind of the same flow and idea. Much of it, at least many of these themes. The church in the world, meaning the church of today. The church in heaven is another one. The rule and reign of Christ, the spiritual rule and reign of Christ. Uh, The final judgment, the second coming, the resurrection of the saints. You know, all of these sorts of things. So understand there is a telling and a retelling and a cycle and a building, kind of like a spiral, you know. But instead of a spiral getting smaller, it's a spiral that that really, I guess it does get smaller. We get more exacting as we go down through the book. We see God's love and care and ultimate protection for his people that even though they may be martyred, Satan does not win the victory because he can't take their soul. We see God's ultimate judgment of those who reject Christ. We see God's ultimate triumph and gaining glory for himself. And so the introduction, uh, we won't read the introduction here tonight, but we do follow along in your Bibles. We'll be just uh, skipping through various chapters. So if you turn to chapter, uh, the first place I'm going to go is actually chapter 4. So you can turn there right now if you want to, and then we'll start working our way. But um, when we get to the seven churches, one of the things we're going to find is that uh, in in the vision of the seven churches, and they really are seven churches, and it really is written to seven churches, uh, he is continually going back to the vision of Christ in chapter 1. And the way that Christ is seen in chapter 1, 
one of those segments, or sometimes two of those segments, will be used to describe himself to that particular church. And so the vision of Christ becomes an important vision for that kind of reason. Now, when we get to chapter 4, it's where the visions really start. And uh, chapter 4, verse 1, let me turn there myself. Chapter 4, verse 1, after this, okay, here we go, you know, there's, there's one of our key phrases right there. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So that sets the stage here of what we're looking at. We've talked about the church on earth, okay, the seven churches. Real churches, but representative churches too, of local churches that still exist even to this day, including ourselves. And of course, um, we have many friends that way too, and other churches that are true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's on earth. What's going on in heaven right now while we're here on earth? Okay, we sing a hymn, I've been singing it a long, long time, uh, for all the saints who from their labors rest. And it talks about that. It talks about the church on earth. It talks about the church in heaven. You know? And uh, that's going on right at this present time. You know? So we go through chapter 4. We see the visions. We see the things taking place. We come into chapter 5. And uh, let's just read, starting in verse number 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, by, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It made them a kingdom, formed them into a church, basically, is what we're talking about. And um, priests unto our God, and they reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, it's a key verse. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So really, even here, we've taken ourselves to the end of history. So all this praise, glory, and worship is going on right now. But do you notice what it says in verse 13? And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that's in them say, well, that, that certainly isn't happening right now. Not every creature, but that's the way it will be. So even in chapter 5, we've taken ourselves to through the church age and into the eternal state. Okay. So uh, let's go next to the church in tribulation. Probably going to spend a little bit more time here than any place else. Because I think the seven seals help us to understand the structure of the book. Because there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. 
uh, these three aspects take up a lot of the book. And then, of course, there's the more difficult parts of the book that we've been in right now about the beast and, and uh, Babylon and, and all of that, uh, but, uh, which is very important. As I said, we've slowed ourselves way down as we've got to that section. But here, let me just pretty much read to you about the seals and to just make some comments and then realize the trumpets elaborate upon the seals and are kind of telling us by seals, I don't mean the animal, you know. I mean sealed up things that you have to unseal. That's what I mean. Okay. Lest there be any mistake from our little ones back there. Okay. So seals, you know. And, and as they're unsealed, we're seeing a picture of the world as it is from the ascension of Christ until the end of time in a capsulized form. We'll see that same picture when we get to the trumpets. Same thing. Only it's intensified. When you get to the bowls, it is magnified tremendously. A third, a third, a third is the trumpets. A third of this, a third of that, a third of that. We get to the trumpets, it's all of this. All, or get to the bowls, it's all of this, all of this, all of this. And the bowls will take us right up to the actual end when we get there. But then we'll make a little diversion back. Okay. And then we'll get to Armageddon. So there you go. That's where we're, that's where we're heading here. Now, chapter 6. Now I watched the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four loving creatures with a voice like thunder say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and its crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, Three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Uh, basically, massive inflation. And then, when I opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, as I was restudying this, trying to explain what it was, I was going into great detail. And uh, sometimes your work is already done for you. And of all places, I found it in the ESV Study Bible, who will usually give you a number of options. And they do in this particular footnote. But I'll just read you the, instead of all of that, I'll read you the one that I think is correct. Um, this is from the ESV Study Bible. The rider on the white horse, armed with a bow and given a crown, rode forth to conquer. Uh, some, uh, however, this rider, armed with a bow, like the Parthians, a frequent enemy to the Roman Empire's eastern border, probably symbolizes political and military leaders destabilizing quests to expand their realms, leading to war, that's the red horse, and that leads to famine, the black horse, an epidemic disease, 
almost always follows war, the pale horse. And you've got death coming in, in many forms because of that. And I do think that's what the four horsemen do symbolize. I'll just say this. Some have thought over time that the white horse is Christ. Well, Christ does come symbolically on a white horse later in the book. But this horse appears to not be coming in a good way. He's coming uh, in judgment, as we see from these other horses that follow, too. So that gives us a picture of the world as we know it today. And people that want to put the headlines into the book of Revelation could actually do that here, although it's not specifically what I was talking about. But you think about how Russia has attacked Ukraine, and now there's problems because Ukraine is a breadbasket of the world and feeds the world, so it's going to cause some famine. Uh, we see massive inflation that, that's come on the world, not just the United States, and uh, death. Uh, will follow and ensue. And this has kind of been the history of the world. It's just one aspect of the history of the world, but it is something that will repeat itself over and over again. And then, of course, there's always uh, opposition to Christ and opposition to the gospel and opposition to the people of God that you see in verse number 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And uh, so remember, it's symbolic. There really aren't people trapped under the throne, you know, waiting for the end. But symbolically, their blood is crying out, like crying out from Abel's blood, crying out from the ground, symbolically. And symbolically, they're crying out too for the judgment of God upon the wicked. And what we'll see in the trumpets is the church is avenged in the seven trumpets. And God's wrath on the world for persecuting the saints. So they say, not quite yet, not quite yet. Wait a little longer. It is going to happen. There will be vengeance. They will pay for what they've done. And, uh, of course, that happens individually to people as they die and uh, go to Sheol. But, um, you know, it will happen to all in one big cataclysmic way on the great final day. We conclude, and uh, we have an earthquake, which often symbolizes the end of the world, We have an earthquake, and we have the end of the world and the final judgment here, starting in verse number 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who can stand? And you'd think that's the end of the book because there's the great judgment of the last day. And um, you can picture of them standing before the throne and uh, being judged 
and uh, wishing that they could hide. But there'll be no place to hide. But this is why the book is secular and, and continues on. And so we've already come to the end of the world again. And we'll get different pictures of the end of the world as we continue on. And of course, seven one again is a good example of uh, of a vision. We actually go back on this one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Okay, after this doesn't mean the next thing that happens after all the mountains are moved and all these things. Uh, speaking that way, and instead we're going back now, talking about the Christians and uh, what's happening with the Christians. Verse 9 shows that, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around, and then we go, like that, boom. So so there we have another picture uh, of the end of the world coming up through this particular time period and culminating in the end of the world there. Okay. Um, verse 3, I skipped that. I think I wanted to say something about that. Oh, yeah, I did. 7.3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And how many times I've said it, probably I'll say it one more time at least, because, you know, we're saying it right now, and maybe I'll say it again, who knows. But uh, all the, the pub, all the publicity goes to the mark of the beast. Okay, everybody's excited about that. A mark on the forehead, a mark on the hand. People get really excited about that, want to talk about that. Um, what does it mean, and when's it going to happen, and what kind of computer chip is it, and, and all these sorts of things end up um, what people talk about. But the book of Revelation talks more about the mark of God. It talks more about the mark of God on, the, on, on those that are his than it does the mark of the beast. That doesn't mean there isn't a mark of the beast. There certainly is. It's an invisible mark, just like the mark on us is an invisible mark. Okay. And it denotes ownership. Those that belong to Satan, those that belong to God. It denotes ownership. And uh, like I say, I think we, really the mark of the beast, uh, it's in movies, it's on television. Uh, your lost friends have heard of the mark of the beast. It's that popular in our culture. But it's, I think, massively misunderstood in our culture. And uh, there is a mark that's on us. And that's actually found in, amongst the churches too. One of those talk about the mark of God that's upon them. Okay, well, we, we continue on here. And um, uh, let's just read, let's just read uh, 13 through 17, because it's worthwhile. Then one of the elders said to me, chapter 7, one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from whence have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And by the way, scorching heat strikes the lost in the fourth bowl. 
in 16.9. Not strike them with any scorching heat, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he'll guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So they say, well, who are the ones that came out of the Great Tribulation? Christians. This is the Great Tribulation that we're in right now. So you wonder why we have so many problems? You wonder why we have so many difficulties? You wonder why life is so hard? It's because we live in the midst of um, wheat and tares. We live in the midst of, uh, you know, a wicked generation. And um, that's just the way it is. And uh, we've been blessed far beyond most. So it's easier for us to, to, in America, although things are getting worse, but it's easier for us in America to say that a tribulation will have to happen someday. Uh, if you lived in many nations of Africa, uh, you would realize the tribulation that they're going through. And by tribulation, it doesn't just come on the lost. It will strike Christians too. Christians are also uh, influenced and uh, actually have to endure the tribulation. That's exactly what I say. These saints have come out of the tribulation. And uh, the church that was persecuted uh, was told they'd have to endure tribulation 10 days, if you remember. So the book was really intertwined and, and connected together in so many ways. We come to the third point, the church avenged. And that's the seven trumpets. And um, it actually comes out of the seals, as you can see in 8.1. The seventh seal brings on the seven trumpets. When the Lamb, verse 1 of 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's to show awe and, and um, just, you, you know, wonder at what's going to happen. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Okay, and then it goes on. And, of course, the trumpets are blown, and events happen that are very similar in many ways to what happens with the seals, like I said, but intensified. And uh, it ends with, all the way to chapter 11, it's more extensive, you can see. The seals took a a little bit of space, you know, basically, and basically one chapter of judgment. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, you know, and all the way to chapter 11, the famous two witnesses who represent the martyrs once again. Uh, martyrs are a real theme in the book of Revelation. And um, we go to verse 15, then of chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And there we've gone our way again uh, through the tribulation to the end. Okay, and then we start verse 12, or chapter 12. I think chapter 12 is one of the more understandable visions. Uh, Pretty clear who the dragon is. 
pretty clear who the woman is, pretty clear who her baby is, and it talks about the baby being caught up to heaven, but obviously that didn't happen immediately, but the providential hand of God was upon our great Savior all the days of his life, protecting him from harm. There were times that people wanted to kill him, and uh, sometimes he'd just walk right through the midst of them, and nobody heard him, nobody touched him, you know. And we take that very literally, believe that to be true. And uh, they took him to, yeah. So that happened more than once, by the way. Satan, in his fury, as he fails in his mission to destroy the Christ, to keep the Christ from coming into the world, and then to destroy the Christ after he's come, failing in that mission, uh, he then uh, takes war out on the rest of the woman's children. Of course, the church, us, you know, and God protects the church uh, as we look at that too. So chapter 12, pretty understandable. I won't read anything of that there, but you should be able to just understanding that, read it and, and understand exactly what the vision's about. Chapter 13 and 14, we're introduced to the beast and the wicked fake trinity, which of course is not a trinity at all. To be a trinity, three have to be one. And these three are not one, but they're tri-forces. And then a fourth one is added, Babylon. And so this is where we see the great spiritual reality of spiritual warfare behind the church and the world. Why there's so many problems, why there's so many troubles, how many, so, how many things have come upon us. And evil will persist until the end of the world, but the saints are preserved and the wicked are judged Look at chapter 14, and you're going to hear some familiar language here in this section to what we've been talking about. Chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw, there you go, there it is again, uh, not chronology, but um, having to do with the new vision. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And remember, those who dwell on the earth. What does that signify? The lost. Always the lost. When you're talking about those that dwell on the earth, that's a, that's a code for those that are lost. Okay. Proclaiming an everlasting, uh, everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. In other words, the gospel will go forth into every corner of the earth. Not every corner of the earth at every single given moment, but every corner of the earth, every place on the earth uh, before the end comes. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven, the sea, uh, sorry, made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Another angel followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And this we find in chapter 17 and 18, of course. And when we get to chapter 18 next week, that'll be a good breaking point because I can see how I'll be able to finish uh, chapter 18, I think, very easily. Um, and that'll be a good place to stop because then we won't be in Revelation again until uh, the second uh, or maybe the third Sunday uh, in, um, in January, depending on if we have a guest speaker. We might have a guest speaker the second Sunday in the evening. Uh, that hasn't been confirmed yet. But uh, we do know that uh, we will be able to then 
uh, wrap up the book and work our way through. Okay, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This is said a few times in the scriptures, and we'll explain that again next week. And another angel, a third of them, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, here's the mark of the beast, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ, talking about refraining from idolatry and serving the Lord only. You know. um, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. And that's an excellent passage that I'll often use as when we're doing a funeral here of a Christian, Christian man, Christian woman, you know. Um, I like to have scripture sentences of just short, pithy sayings before we go into an obituary and before the sermon. And usually this verse will make its way into the, uh, into the funeral itself. And then here's the end of the world. Okay, we see as it deals with the saints and as it deals with the lost. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And I think that's for believers, basically, uh, the Lord's second coming. And uh, we sing that song about harvest time every year. Once a year we sing that. And it's actually kind of taken from this idea right here, along with uh, Christ that gave um, a parable uh, much the same himself. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Of course, symbolic, symbolic language there. But we find the reapers. Remember the, the parable that Christ tells, which the parable of true story about, you know, gather the wheat into the barn, gather the tares to be burnt. And the angels are the reapers. And that's a parable from Christ there. So that's really kind of the same picture as that. Um, the Wrath of God Upon the Impenitent, chapters 15 and 16, more recent work for us. This is the bowls, which is the most intense um, uh, picture of God's wrath upon the wickedness and gives the clearest picture yet of the end of the world. And actually, the seventh bowl will take us right up unto the actual end of the world. 
here. Now, the other ones have too, but it becomes very climactic uh, to do that. And so in chapter 16, verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may go about, not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is Armageddon. We'll be getting to Armageddon very quickly here. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as never had been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great. Uh, you don't want to be remembered like this. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. You say, well, wait a minute. In chapter 6, they were, they were looking to hide in the mountains. And now you're telling me there are no mountains to be found. My friend, these are visions, okay? These are visions that are trying to teach us. And we shouldn't be going, okay, uh, you know. So uh, please understand that. These are not, uh, uh, you know, contradictions and such like that. Okay. Uh, so anyway. There's the picture that we see there. And of course, uh, Armageddon taking place. And um, the sky rolled back as a scroll in verse number 20. Every island fled away, no mountains were to be found. And, uh, and well, other places it talks about the sky being rolled back as a, throne, as a scroll. Sorry. Okay. 17 through 19. I'm not going to say much more because um, that's basically where we have been and where we actually will still be. But there is something I'd like to say about 17 through 19, and uh, the fall of Babylon and the two beasts. It's important to realize that this is not literal Babylon. The city had already ceased to exist uh, long ago, uh, before the writing of John here in Revelation. And it's also not talking exclusively about the end of the world. And uh, it's important to realize that Babylon symbolizes nation-states. It symbolizes regions of power. And uh, there is a final destruction of Babylon, and we're almost there. But Babylon represents any kingdom that comes to power and prominence against the word of the Lord and the king of kings. And every wicked empire will come to an end. Every wicked empire has come to an end until the point that we are in history right now where there are many wicked empires, and I'll tell you, they all are going to come to an end. They will. And if this world goes on for another couple hundred years, I don't know that it will, but if it does, uh, these nations will fall and other nations will rise up that are what? Wicked empires. That's just the way it's going to be and the way that it has been. And the way that Babylon comes to an end is the way that these nations usually do come to an end. A nation and nations, just as wicked as they are, rises up against them, overthrows them, and takes their place. You know. Well, that's the history of wicked kingdoms. And how does it all come about? 1717. You know. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind 
and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Behind it all is God. Babylon riding on the beast in union with the ultimate evil. Has everything going for her. She's prosperous. She's proud, thinking her end will never come. And then God says, enough, enough. In God's sovereignty, this is how God keeps the world in control, too. Helps us to understand a little bit how the world works behind the scenes. In God's sovereignty, Satan's kingdom itself is always divided. Now, what does God say happens if a kingdom is divided? If it's divided, it can't stand. It falls. And so we see over and over and over and over again, kingdoms falling because, as it says in 1717, God causes that to happen. And God does not allow their alliances to stand forever. He allows the wicked to destroy each other until that day that he makes a final destruction of the wicked powers and empires. Until then, the evil kingdoms are destroyed by the very ones they're often in alliance with. And it's happened over and over and over again. And I just have to say again, I've, I've said it many times, you know, it, it's really sad to see what's happened in our country, the downward path of rejoicing in evil. And uh, why would we be exempt from Babylon's fall? God in his mercy may cause a turning. Okay, then we would be exempt from Babylon's fall. But if things go the way they have gone historically, and just think 10 years ago, the, the great debate was gay marriage. Just one example. The great debate was gay marriage. At this point in our American history, and I believe it to be true, two-thirds of, of, the, of, of the people in the United States are not only pro-gay marriage, they, they think that you are an evil, vile, wicked person if you don't agree that love is love, and you just have to agree with that. And, and what's wrong with two people loving each other? And I guess if it ended there, it would be bad, but it wouldn't be as horrible as it's turned out to be. Because they said, oh, you know, 10 years ago, you're an alarmist. You think that all this stuff is is going to cause collapse. You know, what's the matter with you? Are you so, so ignorant that, and that you can't think that two people getting, you somehow think that two people getting married is going to hurt you? How's it going to hurt you? You just get married, get married to a woman, Steve. You know, what, what difference would that make? You, you do that if you want to, and let them get married to each other. You know. But where are we at right now? What's happened now? You know, the things that are going on have gone far beyond gay marriage. And I won't even give you examples, because you should be able to figure them out for yourself. But, um, you know, we said this is what's going to happen. And guess what? If it's not to put a stop to, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And it will continue to get worse. And if God allows it to continue to get worse, that will be the end. That's just one example. That's only one thing. Abortion's another issue. And all these things. Okay. These are the things that we're dealing with. But we shouldn't be discouraged because God's in control. And God will either cease it himself or 
hopefully through the church and the preaching of the word, uh, there'll be people waking up. Instead of being woke, they'll wake up. And they'll realize what we're dealing with, you know. And uh, that could happen. That could, don't, do not discount the fact that that could happen. God can do that. And so I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen next. But it would be kind of interesting to look 10 years into the future and see what we're doing and see what's actually happening. And I think we might be shocked. I'll just give you one example of something that should shock us, but doesn't. And this is a true story. It happened. Uh, um, a boy was, a high school boy was allowed into a girl's locker room. A girl complained. Okay. They were changing, and he was changing, and he was obviously a boy. <laughs> you know, obviously a boy. And uh, she complained. And for her complaint, she was expelled from school. <laughs> so her, her father complained. And then he got in trouble, all kinds of trouble, you know. And, uh, you know, finally the girl was let back into school, but uh, the boy still allowed to change in the girl's locker room, you know. And um, the administration said, look, this is not a problem. There's a bathroom over there. It was a one-stall bathroom. If a girl has a problem with this, she can go change in there. Romans 1. The guy's got a problem. He can go change in there. I mean, how hard is that to figure out? I mean, I'm not a genius, but I would have figured that one out real easy, okay? If this is what we're going to do, then the guy goes in that room and changes, okay? Not the large number of girls, however, there happen to be. So this is how crazy it's gotten. That's just one example. We could name them over and over. I'm not going to do that. I promised myself I wouldn't do that one. But uh, I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. You know. So anyway, that one's still being litigated, by the way. Uh, the girl's back in school. Um, the boy's still in the locker room. And um, the dad, I can't remember what happened to him. I think it's a lawsuit that's going on. You know, so anyway. Um, anyway, as we come to the end here, I need not really go any further because we'll be doing that ourselves as we get into chapter 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. Uh, Brother Pat read chapter 22 for us today. And uh, one of the great things about the book of Revelation, just to close, is Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, I remember they didn't have printing presses back in those days, and they didn't... uh, the way people heard the Word of God is they came to church and heard the Word of God, just like we do, except we have more advantages because we have uh, the Bible in our homes. Advantages if we read it, you know. 1-3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that we've gotten maybe a little bit more clarity, a little bit more insight to the book. It'll be a long time before we go through this book again. Certainly, probably not in my ministry. And Lord, we just pray that you would just uh, let us be partakers of the blessing. We've read the book aloud. We even read it aloud on Sunday mornings, chapter by chapter, and of course, uh, it was more difficult to understand that way, but we read it basically without comment and just uh, believed that 
there's a blessing that comes to those who read it. And so we thank you, Father, and we claim the blessing and ask you to bless us for that. Father, now help us as we go to communion. May Jesus Christ receive all the glory and praise. In his name we pray. Amen.